What was the best meal that you've ever had? I want you to think about that for a minute. What was the best meal that you've ever had? Now, don't think too long because we still got about an hour left in this message. So I'm going to need you to hang with me for a little bit of a moment. Lunch will be later. But for the moment, what was the best meal that you've ever had? Was it when you were a kid, maybe sitting around the family dining room table with a loved one, maybe a grandparent who's passed away. You look back and you remember Thanksgivings or Christmas or maybe a birthday or some celebration. What was the best meal? Was it when you were on vacation? Whenever you go to another country or another place or maybe go to an all-inclusive resort, was that the best meal that you've had? Was it a, a celebration? Was it an anniversary or a birthday? Was it after graduation? Congratulations for all those recent graduates. What was the best meal that you've ever had? Was it a first date? That, that's my best meal. My best meal was 15 years ago. I met a girl, her name was Ashley, and I took her out to dinner on our first date. And I was 19 years old and we were living in Orange at the time. And so I took her to the fanciest restaurant that I knew, Chili's. Because <laughs> when you're from Orange, you do what you can, amen? And so I took her to Chili's and I was so nervous. I was like, this is how nervous I was. I took a shower and made sure I had two eyebrows. That's how nervous I was, okay? <laughs> Because I wanted, this, I wanted this girl to like me. And so I took her out, put a shirt with buttons and saved up some money so I could pay for it. And we went to Chili's, we sat down and the server comes and she asks us, what do you want for dinner? And I'll just be honest with you guys, I ordered a salad, okay? Like I had to keep this like manly figure in check. So I ordered a salad and then she turned to Ashley uh, my, sweet, my, my, my sweet wife now, she's my wife. Those of you who don't know, I'm not talking about some other woman. I'm talking about my wife, okay? And so, um, <laughs> so I, she ordered, kid you not, okay? She ordered a full rack of ribs, cinnamon apples, loaded mashed potatoes, and a chocolate molten cake. And that girl ate all of it. And that was the moment I realized I want to marry this girl and I need to get a better job so I can afford to feed her. But that was our, our first date, okay? And, and it was the best meal because it was the moment I fell in love with her. It, it was the moment that I knew that I wanted to be with her. It was the moment that I knew that I wanted to marry this girl. It was the best meal because it changed my life forever. It changed the trajectory of my life forever. I would not be here today if I did not eat that meal 15 years ago. And we're going to see a very similar thing take place in the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, turn with me to four, uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 10. We're going to look at the best meal in the history of the world they referred to it as the Passover. Today, we refer to it as communion, but it's known as the Last Supper. In the sermon called Jesus and the Last Supper, we're gonna look at the best meal ever. And no, it's not filet mignon, it's not barbecue, it's not crawfish, and it's not ribs and uh, loaded mashed potatoes, cinnamon apples, and a chocolate molten cake. It is the best meal. It is the bread and the cup. So we're going to read it all, make a few observations, and then I want to give you the reason why we celebrate communion here at Redemption as a church, starting in verse 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who would, uh, was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. You're going to see in this text a lot of talk about betrayal, 
But I want you to know that we're going to have an entire sermon coming up in a few weeks all about Judas and Judas' life and what Judas did to Jesus. So we're not going to dig too deep into Judas during this text. But in a few weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about that. Today, I just want to primarily teach over the significance and the importance of Holy Communion. So here's how the story goes. He went to betray him and they were promised him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. Verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They're prepared for us. And his disciples sent out and they went into the city and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was the evening, he came to the 12 and said, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and they said to one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12 who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man as if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and afterward, after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Last verse, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day which I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When it comes to the Bible, there's a lot of different ways that we can read it. So some Scholars and theologians, they break it up into different sections. So some would say the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what's most popular to us. Genesis through Malachi is the Old Testament. Matthew through Revelation is the New Testament. Some people like to read it in the ways of covenants, different ways that God enters into relationship with people. Others see it in dispensations. That's the epochs and different periods of time. But interesting, there is another way that we can look at history and God's involvement and relationship with people. And it's actually through meals. It's through food. It's through meals that are shared with God and with one another. And here's the reason why. It's because food is very important to God. And that's one of the reasons that food is important to us. That food doesn't just satisfy our bodies. If you're taking, taking notes, I want you to write this down. Food doesn't just satisfy our bodies, but rather it sustains our souls. We don't just need food to be alive. We also need food in order to feel alive. Food doesn't just make us alive, but it also helps us to thrive and to be nourished and to be flourished and to be excited. That we don't just need food for our bodies, but also we need food for our souls. Think about it. God didn't have to make us to need to eat food. He could have created us to get our nutrients and substance from any other form. I mean, we could be like plants and we could photosynthesize from the sun. We could be like fish and swim around the water and eat mud and algae and drink water, but he didn't do that. He didn't also make us like machines where we have to like run in place, you know, to recharge our batteries or to plug ourselves into a wall to charge overnight. He didn't make us like that. He didn't make us like machines 
machines. Instead, he made us in the image and likeness of himself. He made us as humans. And one of the parts of being human is the necessity of food. But food is not just for our bodies. Rather, food satisfies our souls. That's the reason why whenever you're happy, what do you do? Well, you eat whenever you have a celebration like a birthday party. You bring all your friends together and you eat carbs and cake and ice cream because it it satisfies your soul for that. Whenever you get married, there's a big wedding and then there's a feast and everybody eats. And when you celebrate that anniversary, what do you do? You go out to eat. When you go on vacation, you don't eat at the same restaurants you could eat when you're in town. Y'all ain't be going to Chili's when you're on vacation. No. What do you do? You go somewhere with good food because it's to memorialize, commemorate. It's to celebrate. It makes you feel alive. This is the reason why when you're sad, what do you do? You eat. Why when you're bored, what do you do? You eat when you're angry, right? You go and you get like 17 burritos from Taco Bell and you just eat them with a fire Diablo sauce. Why? Because because it satisfies something inside all of us. Food doesn't just sustain our bodies. Rather, it satisfies our souls. And I would submit to you this. Every person who is a foodie or is longing for that perfect meal. Here's what you're really longing for. You're longing for communion with God. It's that longing, that desire, that hunger for communion with God. The author of Ecclesiastes, he writes, and he says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man, but every woman knows the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Amen. And so that's because there is a longing, a desire. There is a hunger, a craving for something more. And I would submit to you that the longing for the perfect meal is longing for a relationship with God, communion, the way that God always created and intended for us to be. And so here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through the Bible and I want to show you the five meals throughout the Bible, the five course meal per se. And so there's five different meals that we read in the Bible because food is important to God. I want to show you how this works. So the first meal that was shared was in the Garden of Eden. It was, if you're taking notes, write it down, the forbidden fruit. When God created Adam and Eve, guess where he put them? He put them in a Garden. Don't tell me God don't love food. Okay, God put them in a garden, but this ain't your Mimi's garden, okay? Right, this isn't just a couple of blackberries and some tomatoes. No, this is the Garden of Eden. This is the organic, non-GMO, whole food garden where you can eat anything and everything that you want and never gain weight. That's what's happening in this garden, okay? You can eat everything and you could not gain weight. And and God says, I want to put you in the garden. You can have anything you want, but this one thing. Just don't touch of this one thing, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And three chapters in, what do they do? They do the one thing that God told them not to do. And now some of you, you read this or maybe even taught this, you say, how cruel of God to put that tree in the garden. God just set them up for failure. How cruel of God to do that. But I want you to notice something is that God said, you can have any tree that you want, hundreds, thousands of options. I mean, you have more options than the cheesecake factory in the garden. You could choose anything you want, hundreds, thousands of different options. And yet what do they do? They focus on the one thing that they can't have. Isn't that just like us? 
that instead of looking around at all the things that God has given us, we focus on the one thing that we don't have. And that's where temptation comes in. Because you think that God is withholding something from you. You think God is preventing you from understanding your own. That's wrong. That's where sin comes in. Because you think that God does not have your best interest in mind. And so the serpent comes along and the serpent tempts them and deceives them. And they give in to the one thing that God told them not to do. And I want you to understand something so incredibly important for us to comprehend is that sin is not just the breaking of a law. That's what they thought. That's what you think. That's what many people think. That sin is the breaking of a law, that you do something wrong. You do something you're not supposed to do, but that's not necessarily what sin is. Sin is not just the breaking of a law or the violation of a command. Sin is the breaking of a relationship. See, God made Adam and Eve to walk with him, to share time with him, to eat with him, to enjoy his presence, communion with him. That's how God made Adam and Eve, to be in communion with him. And when they sinned, they got up from God's table and they sat down with Satan. And they ate a meal they were not supposed to eat because they chose a friend they were not supposed to have. Sin is not just the breaking of a law. Sin is also the breaking of a friendship, of relationship. It is the breaking of communion with God. And so we see this take place here in Mark. Mark is genius. The way he organizes the Last Supper, he's actually kind of walking us through the five meals that are in the Bible. Because what's happening? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they betrayed God. What's Judas doing right now? He is getting up from the table of Jesus and he is going to betray Jesus. Judas is participating in the first meal that was ever shared, friendship with Satan. Through his sin, through his rebellion, through his getting up and walking away, he is literally breaking communion with Christ. Just like Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, Judas has been walking with Jesus for three and a half years. The same way that Adam and Eve, they talked with God. Judas has been talking with Jesus, the son of man, God in the flesh. And just as Adam and Eve, they partook and forsook their king, the same way Judas is partaking and forsaking Jesus himself. Listen, sin is not just the breaking of a law or doing something wrong. It is the breaking of a friendship. This is why when people sin against you, the friendship is broken. The relationship is broken. The, 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 the communion has been broken. And that's what sin does. It's a violation, not of a law, but of a friendship. And so the first meal was shared in the garden. It was a garden that was placed for Adam and Eve to enjoy communion, but instead they partook and forsook their God with the forbidden fruit. So as the story goes, it leads to a second meal that God gives to his people. It's known as the Passover. This is found in the book of Exodus. God's people were slaves. They were in Egypt. They were uh, in bondage under a wicked king named Pharaoh, who was a, a slave owner, a taskmaster. And many, many, many years, the Hebrew people would cry out to God. And then God heard their prayers. He raised up a prophet, a man named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nope, not going to happen. And his heart hardened towards the Lord. And so God sent a series of plagues, 10 plagues to be able to deliver his people out. And the last plague was the most severe of the plagues. It was the death of the firstborn son. But there was a contingency plan that 
that God put in place that anyone who would sacrifice a pure, perfect, spotless lamb and take that blood and put it over the doorpost of their homes, they would be saved. That during this night, the angel of death literally would go over the town and anyone who did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the firstborn in that home was, would die. But anyone who had the blood, death would literally pass over. That's where they get the name Passover. And here, what we see is this, is that the wages of sin is death and that the firstborn would die. But we also see that death could be passed over by the blood of a lamb, the sacrifice of another. And so Jesus comes as our great Passover lamb. Who is he? The Bible says he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if the firstborn of God's only begotten son dies in your place, substitutes himself for your sins, if you're covered in the blood of Jesus, then death and hell passes over you. And just like the Egyptians, we're, we're slave owners. Satan is a slave owner in the same way that the Israelites were delivered from their bondage and brought into the promised land of freedom the same way for you and me and anybody covered by the blood of the lamb. We are delivered from bondage and we are brought free and we are brought to a land of freedom and of grace and of mercy and of redemption through Jesus. And for thousands of years, God said, I want you to remember this. I want want you to remember what I have done for you, that it is me who delivers you. It is me who rescues you. It is me who performs mighty signs and wonders on your behalf. It is me who forgives you. It is me who sustains you. It is me who has been there for you. And I never want you to forget what I did for you when death literally passed over you. And so for thousands of years, the Hebrew people, they would gather every single year in Jerusalem to remember, to commemorate, and to celebrate the Passover meal. That's the same place that we find ourselves here at today in Mark chapter 14, when it says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they would sacrifice the Passover lamb. What is Jesus doing? He is celebrating Passover with his disciples. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem. He's been ministering for three years, preaching, teaching, revealing the kingdom of God. He goes into Jerusalem during Passover, the high holy week, the most important week in all of the Jewish calendar. Passover is like Christmas and Easter and Mardi Gras all rolled up into one. It is a large celebration. A town of about 20,000 people during the Passover would swell to upwards of 500,000 people to celebrate this Passover meal. And what God says is every single year, I want you to gather together the entire people, my whole family, and I want you to feast and to celebrate and to remember that I am the God who delivers you. And so Jesus gathers with the disciples and they meet in the upper room. Here's one of the reasons why I know that God loves food, not only because of the Garden of Eden and for Passover, but look at the intention that Jesus puts behind sharing this meal. I mean, this ain't a meal that he like forgot about and have to go pick it up or Uber it in. Like, no, he took a lot of care and concern about sharing this meal with his disciples. He says, when you go into town, you're going to find a man with a pot. And when you go find that guy and he has a pot of water, ask him, hey, where's the master's you know, table at? And he's like, oh, I got this place prepared for you. Look at the intricate detail that Jesus went through to be able to prepare a meal for his disciples. Why? Because God loves food and food is important. All my Baptist friends said, amen. God loves food. 
food. And so here's what we see next. It's the last supper. Jesus gets together with his disciples and then he shares in this meal. But Jesus here actually breaks from tradition. See, tradition would have a bread and cup and then they would have the lamb. But as we read through this text, there is no mention of a lamb. We see the bread, we see the cup, but we don't see a lamb mentioned. Why is that? Because Jesus is the lamb. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. There is the bread, there is the cup, but Jesus is our Lamb. And in doing so, when Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is the cup of my covenant and my blood. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is breaking with thousands of years of tradition. Nobody says this. This is not a part of the Passover tradition. Nobody says, take and drink, take and eat, this is my body, this is my blood. Nobody celebrates Passover with the lamb. But here's what Jesus is doing. He is breaking tradition because he is introducing a new covenant. He is closing the old covenant and he is introducing the new covenant. He is closing the Old Testament and he is bringing about the New Testament. In this very moment, what we're seeing is this, the fulfillment of all of the law and prophets happening at exactly the same time. In Genesis, following the forbidden fruit, what we see is a prophetic declaration from God that through the seed of a woman would come another who would crush the head of the serpent. The Passover lamb is nothing more than prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus. And inside all of these meals that are shared are prophecies that are pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, the lamb of God, who is going to take away the sins of the world. The old is gone and the new has come. The old covenant has closed. And this is the cup of the new covenant that is available for you. Jesus changes all of human history. This is the meal that changed the world. This is the meal that changed your life. This is the meal that changed the trajectory for the entire human experience. Because at this point, if you wanted to be loved or to be forgiven by God, people would have to gather and they would have to travel from the ends of the earth. But what we see in Christ is that God moved from heaven to earth in order to be with us. That we don't make our way to God, but in this moment, God himself has made his way to us. For them, in order to have their prayers be heard, they would have to go visit a high priest. But now we don't have to go to a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf. If you wanted to be able to be blessed by God, you would bring your tithes and your offerings. But we see that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the first fruits of a new creation. Jesus is God's tithe to us. What you used to have to do is make a sacrifice. You would have to go to a temple. But now we don't need a temple because Jesus is our temple. He says that if you destroy this building and three days later, I will rise. And he was talking about the temple that is his body. He is fulfilling the law. He is fulfilling the prophets. Every story in the Bible ultimately is one story about one man, one person, and his name is Jesus. And we don't need to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice. All of this is happening at the table. The prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled right here. It is the closing of the old. It is the welcoming of the new. That's why they call it the Last Supper. It's not because it's the Last Supper that Jesus ate, but rather it is the Last Supper that we needed because now we have Jesus and we have constant communion with him now. And that leads us to the fourth meal that we're studying today and that we do every single week here at Redemption. It is a meal known as communion. 
Jesus says, I want you to do this. As often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still partaking in that moment that the disciples shared. It's a meal that we refer to as communion. And it's really because we love, to, we love to eat together, we love to be together, and we love to spend time with one another. Have you ever wondered why does the church take communion? Like who came up with this? Like who, who invented this? I mean, it seems like there'd be other traditions, other, other ways that we could commune or connect with God. Where did this come from? It actually comes from here in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus gives us the instructions to take Holy Communion. We also see it throughout the book of Acts. In the early church, they took communion together. We see in Acts chapter two, following Pentecost, what do they do as a church? They eat together. That's why Pentecostals love to eat too. We in the Baptists have something in common. We love to eat, amen? And so in, in, in Acts chapter two, they gather together in the church and they break bread and they share a meal together. That's communion. But then it also says they met home to home and they take communion at their house in a feast that's called small groups. That's the same way that we organize our church here. So we gather together and on Sunday, we break bread and we take communion. But at the same time, we are all in small groups and we gather and we break bread bread at our houses and we share in the meal together because that's the pattern that the Bible has established for the church to operate. It also flows all the way through the book of Acts. I think just off the top of my head, there's 12 different times that they break bread together, take communion together in the book of Acts. We also see it in the book of 1 Corinthians. The most lengthy instruction for communion is given in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is teaching a young church who is kind of foolish. They don't really know what they're doing and they're taking communion in an improper way. And so he writes this letter to them and he's instructing them on why and how and what the importance of communion is. I actually did a whole exegesis over this sermon about four years ago. It's on the sermon archives. If you wanna dive in deeper, listen to it. It's called Jesus Gives Us Communion in our To Be The Church series. And so we go through that, we walk through it, but it's all about the importance of communion as a church. And here's what we learned, is that communion is what is known as a sacrament. That's kind of two words, put together sacred moments. It is a holy moment. It is a sacrament. And there's only two sacraments that Jesus tells us to participate in. The first sacrament is water baptism. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always until the end of the age. And so what we're told to do by Jesus is to baptize. How many of you have been baptized before? Raise your hand. Let me see everybody who's been baptized. Look around. Okay. So let me ask you this question. When you were baptized, was it different than taking a bath. It's different, right? It's different, right? My daughter, Esther, she's four. And every time we have baptism, she says, daddy, is it time for baptisms? Because she thinks that when people take a bapt get baptized, they're taking a bath. And I'm like, no, baby, hopefully today they took a bath before they came to church uh, <laughs> because we are not taking baths, you know, at, at church today. She thinks they're baptisms. But here's the thing is, it's different than just taking a shower. It's different than going swimming. It's different than just getting wet. Why? Because it's sacred. 
Something unique and special happens when you step into that water and you identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. When you say publicly, this is my story, Jesus is my Lord, and I am going to follow him, and I have and will continue to experience life change through Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes, and it's something sacred that happens when you step in those baptism waters. It's the same thing when it comes to communion. Jesus says, take, drink, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Two things Jesus tells the church to do, baptize and take communion. Now, let's just be honest. You're not going to get filled up on communion, or if you do, like you shouldn't. You shouldn't just come up here and drink all the, all the wine and eat all the bread and make yourself a sandwich and then go home, okay? Um, you can go out to eat afterwards, but you're not going to get filled up when it comes to taking communion, are you? No, but here's the point, is it's not designed to sustain your body, but rather it is designed to satisfy our souls. There is something special. There is something beautiful. There is something sacred that happens in this moment when we come forward and we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we drink together as a church and we participate in union and fellowship and relationship both with God and one another. This is what we were designed and created for. It is communion together. And this is how God has established the church to operate. And this is how we continue to operate together as a church. And that leads us to the fifth meal, the final meal that will be prepared for us. And it is known as the wedding feast of the lamb. So in the book of Genesis, the story of the Bible opens with a meal. God puts them in the garden and then Adam and Eve, they forsook God and they sinned against him and they shared a meal with Satan and they broke fellowship and relationship, but God kept pursuing after them. He delivers them through the Passover. Then we see the last supper where Judas also betrays Jesus, but Jesus gives us communion to remind us of the unity that we have with him. And then one day, just like in Genesis opens with a meal, Revelation will close with a meal and it is called the wedding feast of the lamb where Jesus prepares a table for every person who professes hope and faith in Jesus Christ. They trust in him. Every single Christian from out all of human history, the saints of the Old Testament who are looking forward to the coming of Christ and now us as the saints of the New Testament who are looking forward to the second coming of Christ. We will all be gathered together, brothers and sisters around the table of our Lord and the wedding feast is going to be Served by who? Jesus, the lamb, the wedding feast of the lamb. He was not present at the last supper, but he will be present at the wedding feast of the lamb. And every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnic food you can imagine is going to be served at this table. I mean, the best Indian food, the best Tex-Mex will be there. I mean, we're going to have food from places that we don't even know exist. I mean, I'm just dreaming. I was thinking and talking to Ashley last night. I was like, what do you think Jesus is going to serve us at the wedding feast of the lamb? Those of you who are gluten-free, you will be healed from your gluten allergy and you'll get to eat all of the bread that you want. Those of you who are vegans, you will be forgiven of your sins and we will eat food and feast because it's called the wedding feast of the lamb, not the wedding feast of the Boca burger. Come on, Jesus. And we're all going to be gathered together and we're going to dine and we're going to eat. I was like, Ashley, what do you think we're going to eat at the wedding feast of the lamb? And we were talking and laughing. I was like, I hope we get to eat like extinct animals. Because you don't know. I love chicken. Maybe a dodo bird tastes just as good. I don't know. But it's going to be everyone gathered together. 
brothers and sisters forgiven of our sins. And then Jesus is going to walk in and he's prepared this meal for us. God cooks for us. Don't tell me God don't love food. God cooks a meal and we all sit down and we raise our glasses and we toast to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and we'll laugh and we'll eat and we'll drink and we're at a wedding and Satan is not invited and sin will be defeated and it will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and we will all drink and eat and laugh and be merry in the eternal banquets that God has prepared for us. And these are the meals that are present in the Bible, and all these meals are present when we come together and we take communion. When we take communion, we are looking back at what Jesus has done for us. But at the same time, when we hold the cup and the bread, we are looking forward to what Jesus promises that he will do for us. And so if you're here today and you're hurting, come and eat, come and drink. The table is available for you. If you are thirsty, come, take, eat, drink. If you are lonely, exhausted, if you are tired, if you are broken, if you are frustrated, if you had a very difficult week this week, come, take, and eat because the table has been set. The invitations have been sent and you are welcome at the table of the Lord. This is the best meal ever and it's available for you today. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna spend the remainder of this message and I wanna talk to you about why we take communion as a church. Okay, so me and Ashley, when we went, we went to Chili's and we got a uh, two for 20. Do you remember that? Two for 20? Okay, that's what you're getting today. Two sermons for $20, all right? <laughs> so the offering basket's in the back. You can give it on your way out the door. Two sermons for 20. But here's the reason why. I want to spend the rest of the time just talking about the significance of communion because I am not under the illusion that many of you, you don't really understand communion. Every week we take communion as a church and you might come forward and partake in communion, but you might not really understand why we do it. I know that the tradition I was raised in, I didn't have an understanding of communion. I remember when I first became a Christian, they would pass the gold plates and we'd have the little cracker and the little shot glasses, um, communion cups, I think is what they called them. I knew them as shot glasses. That just tells you where I come from, amen? And so we would take, I was like, this is not nearly as fun as what I had on Saturday, okay? So... Um, <laughs> So we would have, uh, they would pass the plate and I'd take the little stale cracker and the little shot glass of grape juice and then I would just eat it and then we'd sing a song and like that was it. But there was no real significance to me. I remember whenever we went to Houston, me and Ashley were living in Houston and we went and visited a church that they did communion different. They did it like we do it, where they come up front and you pull a piece off and you dip it in the cup. And I remember like, this is different for me. They, I've, they do it every week, every week. Wow, okay. Um, so why did they do that? And I was just thinking, okay, they're inviting me to come forward. And so we come forward and uh, the, I pull the piece off and I, I dip it in the cup. And there's a, me and Ashley are taking it and there's an elderly couple, maybe 80, 90 years old. And they're serving communion together. And I look into her eyes and there's tears coming down her eyes. And her husband has this big, big grin on his face. And they, she takes the bread and she holds it up and she says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then he said, this is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And I remember thinking in this moment, those people have a different understanding of communion than I do. They know something I don't know. 
And so I just want to figure out what this truly means because it has to be more than just a stale cracker and some juice at the end of a service. And many of you, you probably feel that way. See, redemption, we're an eclectic bunch. Okay, we have people from all different walks of life, backgrounds, and traditions. Some of you were raised Catholic. So if you're Catholic, welcome to Mass. My name's Father Byron. We're going to have the Eucharist in a little bit. Some of you, you were raised in um, more high church traditions like Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Lutheran. Others of you were raised Baptist. Some of you were raised in my favorite denomination, non-denominational. You're like, what denomination are you? Oh, I'm non-denominational. Oh, yeah, you are. You just belong to a rebellious denomination who doesn't believe in spiritual authority. That's what you believe in, okay? And so, oh, too much? Is that too soon? Okay. So, so, so you're like, oh, okay. And we all come from different backgrounds and different beliefs and different types of traditions. And we're all importing our own understanding of communion. And so what I want to do is I want to just bring us together and teach what we actually believe communion represents and what communion means for us. Because my favorite group in the church is those who are not raised in church at all. Those who have no church background, de-churched or unchurched. Our church is growing. This is the reason there's 200 baptism locks on that wall out there because every Every single week, we have people who are meeting Jesus, getting saved, coming to church, getting connected. Our next steps class is full every single month. Last month, we had like 30 people. I'm believing this month, we're going to have even more than that. Getting plugged into the church, more people are coming and experiencing life change through Jesus than ever before. We have more people in small groups, roughly 70%, I believe, last check of our church is involved in a small group. I mean, we just baptized 27 new believers every single week. The church is growing post-COVID. We're already at 100% of our post-COVID numbers. And for the last three weeks, we've actually had to add chairs in the back of the services because more people keep coming, showing up, and not everyone has an understanding of what communion truly means. That there might be people in the room today who are going to come forward each and every week and you pull the piece and you dip it in the cup, but you're just like me and Ashley all those years ago, and you do it and you like it and it's cool, but you don't really know why. And so what I want to do is I want to take the time today and I want to teach over the importance and the significance that we find in communion. Because food doesn't just sustain our bodies. What does it do? It satisfies our souls. And so here is three reasons that we take communion here as a church. It's found in Mark 14, 22. Here's what we read. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to him and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks to them, he said, drink of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So three things that we find in communion. The first is this, it's the bread. We see that Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. Now, depending on the tradition that you were raised in, the way that you interpret that text is going to be different. So if you're raised Catholic, what you were taught is something known as transubstantiation. And what that means is that when you take the cup and you take the bread, that the, the wine and the bread literally become the body of Christ. 
that it's the actual body of Christ that you are receiving when you take communion, almost in the form of re-crucifying Christ every week. It's like a cannibalization, but we don't believe that it's a cannibalization, but rather it is a communion fellowship that we have. And so at redemption, we would not say that there is a transubstantiation. We do not believe that Jesus is being literal when he says, this is my body. He's not talking about his literal body. He's talking about something different. Others of you, you come from maybe a Lutheran background where they would teach something known as consubstantiation, which means that it is the physical body of Christ, yet it is in, under, and around the communion. And you say, Byron, can you explain that? No, I can't. I don't understand what that means, and neither do they. That's why they would say it is a mystery. So they would teach not transubstantiation, but consubstantiation. And then there was another man. His name was Ulrich Zwingli. Okay, he had fun in kindergarten, Ulrich Zwingli. And he lived in the 1500s and he was a part of the Protestant Reformation, but he saw the abuses and the things that were happening in the Catholic Church. He also disagreed with Martin Luther. And so he came up with something else known as the memorial feast, that there is no real significance in communion. We only take it to memorialize, to remember, to commemorate. But he doesn't believe it's a sacrament. Rather, he taught that it was an ordinance. It was a good idea. It was something for the church to do. And so it was known as the memorial feast. For those of you who were raised Baptist or like me in the Assemblies of God, those of you who were raised in traditions that took it once a month, maybe once a presidential election, once a quarter, or whenever you felt like it uh, at youth group, when you pull a piece of pepperoni off and dip it in some grape soda, and you're like, we're taking communion right now. If that's the tradition you come from, you're part of the memorial feast tradition. But redemption, we don't believe that either. So where does redemption land? Personally, we land somewhere between two and three in what John Calvin calls the real presence that it is not the physical body of Jesus, but it is still the literal body through his spiritual presence with us. In this moment, when Jesus says, take, this is my body, he is speaking in a figurative literal. Some people say, you can't take the Bible literal. We take the Bible literally here. We take the Bible literally. What parts do you not take literal? The part where he says, love your neighbor. The part where he says that Jesus rose from the grave. Are we not supposed to take that literal as well? I mean, I believe in a, a literal interpretation of the scripture. I believe that there was a six-day creation. I believe that there was a global flood. I believe the stories of Joshua and the judges. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that the church is being sent to be his witness. And I believe one day Jesus is coming in. All those things, literal, but there's different types of literal when it comes to the Bible. And one type that we are well aware of, even in our society, is a figure figurative, literal. So let me say this. If I were to tell you that I am so hungry, I could eat an elephant. Does that mean that I want to barbecue Dumbo and slather some barbecue sauce and have that for lunch today? No, that's not what I mean, right? What I'm saying is I am hungry. You all understand the figurative, literal that happens. And that's the way Jesus is talking right now. So there's other cases where Jesus speaks in the figurative, literal. One example is he says, I am the vine. Does that mean that Jesus is a tree with like plants growing off of him? Is that what it means? No, we don't worship a tree, okay? When Jesus says, I am the door, does that mean that he's made out of lumber? Okay, lumber is expensive, but it's not as costly as Jesus, amen? 
I mean, he's, he's not saying I'm made out of wood. That's not what he's talking about. What is he, what is he saying? Figurative, literal. So when he says, this is my body, it's not his physical body, but rather a spiritual reality that is happening when we come forward and we take of the cup and the bread. This is why his presence is with us. It is a manifestation of his presence in a way that is totally unique from any other experience that we can have. It's God's presence with us in communion. Does that mean that you can't experience God's presence elsewhere? No, absolutely. You can experience God's presence elsewhere. This is why the reformers broke from the Catholic church because they believed in something known as the priesthood of all believers, that we didn't have to have a priest to give us God's presence. We could find God's presence in our car. We can get it in the shower. We can find God's presence when we're tucking our kids in bed at night. We can get God's presence when we gather on Sunday mornings, when we come to first Wednesday prayer nights. I think that God's presence is even going to be here at team night tonight. Anywhere you're at, you can experience, you can find, you can, you can be in God's presence because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. God, very God living inside of us. And so we can experience God's presence anywhere, anytime that we are at. However, through communion, God demonstrates his presence in a way that is unique, that is different. This is why Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the gathering or the assembling together for we stir one another up for love and good deeds. When we gather together, God's presence is with us in a way that you cannot experience in your car, a way that you cannot experience on your own or on a mountain or by yourself. Something unique happens as the church gets around the the, the table of God with the cup and with the bread. His presence is with us. So people ask to say, Byron, why does redemption take communion every week? How many of you that's new? Like you've never been a part of a church that takes communion every week, right? People come in, they're like, um, they take communion every week? I, I know they're not Catholic. I mean, the sermons are too long and the, the, the music's too loud and the priest isn't wearing a dress. I don't think they're Catholic. <laughs> but they take communion every week. That's weird. That's weird. They say, well, why do you take communion every week? Here's the simple reason why we take it. It's because at redemption, we are lovers of God's presence. And if God has something for us, we want it. And if Jesus is inviting us to commune with him, we're going to commune with him. If God has something more for us, we always want more of what God's got for us. If it's God's plan, it's for our good. And if God has it, we want it. And the reason we take communion every single week is because we are lovers of God's presence. That's the very simple reason why we take it. But there are other reasons that we take communion here every single week as a church too. And one reason is very practical. The practical reason is because on average today, the average churchgoer only attends one time a month. So the most committed church members come once out of every four weeks. And so that would mean that for those of you who are not regular in your attendance, but more sporadic, what happens is you might only come to 12 services per year. And if we only took it once a month, you might be able to go two, maybe even three years without experiencing God's presence through communion. And so what we do, we do it every single week so nobody feels left out. We do it every single week because every single week we need to experience God's presence. And if you don't come next week, but you come three weeks later, guess what? We're still going to be offering and serving communion for you because we want for you to experience the presence of God in a real, unique, and tangible way. Another reason we take communion every single week is because that's what we see happen in the Bible. 
In the Bible, anytime the church gathered on the Lord's day, they broke bread in fellowship and they took communion as well. We see it throughout church history. In the first century, there was a book found called the Didache. It was an early manual for the church. And in it, it gave instructions for the early church to take communion every single week. We also see it throughout the church fathers. We see it throughout church history. And we also see it in other places around the world. Interesting, it's pretty much in America, we're the only place who does not take communion every single week. If you go to other countries, if you go to other nations, they're taking communion every single week. And so we take communion, not not only to stand in biblical teaching, but also to stand in faith with the church tradition, church history, and also we do so in the continuum of Christianity with our persecuted brothers and sisters and those who are around the world worshiping Jesus today. 3.5 billion Christians on the planet are gathered together and we are all taking of Holy Communion at the same time. It's the way that we worship. And so that's the reason that we take communion every single week. And then inevitably, I always get some pushback right about here. This is where people say, well, don't you just think if you take it every week, it's going to lose its meaning? Don't you think it's just going to lose its significance? You know, I don't think that you should take it every single week because I think communion should mean something special. And the more you do it, the less special it will become. Listen, at Redemption, it's less about routine, but it's more about relationship that we don't take it out of religious obligation. We don't take communion out of rote duty and we don't take it out of routine, but rather we take holy communion out of our relationship with God. But sometimes routine creates relationships, doesn't it? I mean, just think about it like this. How often do you tell your kids you love them? Every day, right? You would, your kid wouldn't run up to you and say, sorry, son, I can't tell you I love you because I told you yesterday. You're gonna have to wait one more quarter. That's how your kids go to therapy, by the way. No, you tell them you love them. Why? Because you love them. And the more you tell them, the more trust it builds in that relationship and the more your love for one another grows. How many of you eat family dinner together every single day, multiple times a week? You know, research is showing that the, the best thing you can do for your kids is to eat dinner with them every single night. Children who grew up in homes where their family share a meal, they are least likely to uh, do drugs, give in to alcoholism, least likely to uh, develop eating disorders, have mental health issues, and they get, get better grades and make it into better colleges simply by eating together as a family. Do you think that's important? Yes, there's a compounding effect that happens when the family gathers together and eats meals together. What about if your spouse wanted to be intimate with you? If they come up to you and say, hey, baby, and you're say, no, not tonight. We did it last week. I don't want it to lose its meaning. I don't want it to lose its significance. Can we just wait another week? How many of you, you're like, no, routines are good. Some routines are good, amen. And why? Because the more that you demonstrate your love for one another, what happens? You're renewing your covenant and you're showing your love and your relationship is growing. And in a same sense that sex between a husband and a wife is a vow covenant renewal that happens, communion is a reminder of our covenant with Christ. It develops a deeper and greater intimacy. And the more we do it, the greater our knowledge and the greater of our love continues to grow for him. It's not about routine, but rather it is about relationship. And so we partake at the table because we have a relationship with God. 
And the more we take communion, the more our love for God continues to grow. And so let me give you three things that are found in the bread. This is our relationship with God. The first thing is this, is God's love for us. Look at what 1 Corinthians says. It says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Look at that word right there, for you. I want you to focus on that word, for you. I do not want you to forget that word, for you. When you take of the bread and you hold it up, here's what you're saying, that Jesus would do this for me? That God would send his only begotten son for me? that Jesus would live the perfect life in my place for my sins, that Jesus would go to the cross on my behalf for my sins, that he who knew no sin would become sin so that through him I might become the very righteousness of God, that he would do this for me, that Jesus would substitute himself, pay the penalty for my sin. Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? Do you know what I've gone through? Do you know the situation that I'm in? God says, yes, I know where you've been. I know where you're at. I know what you've done. And I still choose you. This is for you, that Jesus would die for you, that Jesus would be buried in the grave. And then three days later, he would resurrect for you, that Jesus would ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he's interceding on your behalf, that he is praying for you, that he is serving you, that he sends his Holy Spirit to empower you, to enable you. God, very God, living in inside of your chest to inspire you to overcome sin and temptation. He gives you supernatural spiritual gifts so that way you can live a life of meaning and reason and you can make a difference. He would do all of this for you when you take of the bread and you hold it up. It's a demonstration of God's love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and you hold it up and you say, God did this for me. For you, it's God's love. But on the other hand, it's our love for God. Look at the next verse that we read. It says this, and is this not the bread that we break in participation in the body of Christ? That word participation in the Greek is the word koinonia. And what that word means is fellowship. It means friendship, conversation, communion. Adam and Eve, they had koinonia with God in the garden. Judas, even for a period, he had koinonia with Jesus. But at the table, what we see is that Jesus, though Adam sinned, though Judas sinned, Jesus is still inviting for us to have communion, koinonia, relationship, fellowship, participation in the body of Christ. And so when you come forward to communion, you're showing your love for God, that I am not going to be passive in my worship. I am going to be active in worshiping. I am going to participate, not just observe. I don't want to be observer. I'm going to be a participator in this. I don't come just to fill a chair and get a good word and some warm fuzzies and walk out, be completely unchanged after this week. No, I am pursuing after God because God ran for me. I'm going to run to him because God chased after me. I am going to chase after him. I am going to show the love that God has and I'm going to mirror that reflecting back to him. I am going to participate in the body of Christ. It is about a showing of a demonstration of your love for God as well. But also, number three, it's our love for others. I love what he says in this very next verse. He says this, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one 
loaf. What other figurative, literal word did Jesus use to describe his body? It's the church. That you and me as a church, when we gather together, we are the body of Christ. And so when you share from the loaf, what you're doing is you are taking and you are eating. But so is the person next to you and so are the people around you. And by the end of the communion meal, the bread is gone. But the bread is not gone, the bread is in us. And the bread is still in the room, but it's inside all of us. And so now you carry the bread and I carry the bread. And what that's showing and symbolizing is that we all share from the same source of life. That in one sense, you could look at communion and you say, oh, that's about Jesus' death. But in another sense, you can look at communion and say, no, this is the distribution of Jesus' life that you have the love of God in you and I have the love of God in me. And so I should love you the same way that God loves me. That you have God's grace on your life and so I should give you grace the same way he gave me grace, I should give that back to you. The same way that God has forgiven me, I now forgive you. The same way God has loved me, now I love you. The same way that you are one with God, we are one together because I've been made one with God. And this is not just an individualism. This is a collectivism. In the same way that your food didn't just get there, somebody provided that food, whether it was a farmer or whether it was somebody who was driving a truck, whether it was somebody who cooked it, somebody who prepared it, food is always touched by other people in their lives. In the same way that there was a preparation that took place. There is a preparation of our hearts and our church and our community that there is a place for all of us coming together and sharing out of the same source of life. Christ is our life and we share that together. I love the idea of a family dinner, that God is our father and that every single week he wants his kids to come and eat family dinner with him that you and me, we become the brothers and sisters of Christ. Jesus is our big brother. And because of him, we have been adopted into the family of God. And at the family table, the father does not play favorites. Everybody gets a seat. Everybody has a place at this table and you can have seconds and there's going to be ice cream with two scoops at the family of the father and we're gathered around and there's a big smile on the father's face because all his kids are sitting around the table and there is no partiality at the table of the Lord. We are all equal. We are equally loved. We are equally served. We are equally blessed. We are equally forgiven. We are equally distributed. We are equally taken care of. God listens to your prayers in the same way he listens to their prayers. There is no favorites at the family table because we all have the same father. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or black or white or Latino or Asian. It doesn't matter who you voted for in the last presidential election. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what other people have done to you. It doesn't matter your sins of your past. It doesn't matter where you've been because God sees it, God knows it, and God still welcomes you anyway. We are all welcome at the family table table. He brings us together and he says, this is my body. Take and eat and experience my presence in a very real and genuine way. This is my body. Take and eat. Which leads us to the second thing. It's the, it's the cup. Here's what Jesus says 
in reference to the cup. And he took the cup and what he had given thanks to them. He said, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And then 1 Corinthians adds this in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup and the new covenant is my blood. Do this. And whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. I love what Martin Luther says that we need to hear the gospel daily. Why? Because we forget the gospel daily. Isn't that so true? Like, don't we forget who God is and what God does? Do we not forget? I know I'm your pastor and I forget. So if I forget, I know that you forget too, right? I forget the gospel in the middle of a crazy, hectic, busy week. I tend to forget. I get so busy that I forget who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Sometimes as your pastor, I get so busy working for Jesus, I forget to love Jesus. True story. And so I forget, I mean, in the crazy of life, when you're waking up in the morning and you hit the snooze button three times and you try to get coffee and wipe the crust out of your eyes before the kids wake up, isn't it kind of hard to spend some time with Jesus because you forget? Like when you're trying to find your kid's shoe before they have to go to preschool, you're like, where is that shoe? And you're going around looking for their shoes. So you're like, how did you take your pants off again? And then it's, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Those of you who are parents, it's tough. Don't you forget and then you go to work and then your boss is calling and emails are piling up and you got reports that are due and some customer is talking to you in a negative way and you get frustrated and then you finally come home and you got to get the kids to soccer practice. You got to bring the kids to ballet and you eat food that's cooked not from the table of the Lord, but from a high schooler who hands it to you through a window. And you're like, I know this is not good for me, but at the moment it sustains my body. It does not satisfy my soul. And so you're just trying to get it through the day. You finally come home. You're dog tired. You turn on Netflix and then you stay up for three more hours because you can't sleep and you forget at the same time. We forget the gospel. But what happens when we forget the gospel is we forget who we are. That's where sin comes in because you forget who you are. Adam and Eve, they forgot the communion they had and they broke fellowship. When we forget the communion that we have, what do we do? We break fellowship. We sin and eat a meal that we should not eat. When we're isolated, when we're alone, when we're exhausted, when we are forgetful, that's when sin comes in. That's when temptation comes in. That's when you give in to alcoholism. That's when you begin to relapse back into your addiction. When you think that nobody's watching you, that's when you begin to download pornography or sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. When you think you're outside of accountability, you move in with somebody that you should not be living with. You're sharing meals that you should not be having. This is the reason because you forget the gospel. You forget who Jesus is, but you forgot what you have become because of him. This is why we're short with our wives or our husbands. This is why we neglect our children because we forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, what happens is we share a fellowship with someone that we should not have. And so here's what we see in communion. You are forgetful. But God is faithful. He invites you to the table because not of your worthiness, but because of his faithfulness. He says, I know you forgot me this week, but I remembered you. I know you forgot me this week, but I did not forget you. And so I'm bringing you to the table so you can remember that even though you are forgetful, I am so faithful. 
That word new covenant, do you know what that word covenant means? In the Hebrew, it's the word hesed, which means the loving kindness, the kindness, the compassion of God. It is the kindness of God that leads us back into repentance, amen? Amen. It's his hesed love, his immutable character, his attribute. In the Jesus Storybook Bible that we read to our daughters, what it is actually referred to as the never giving up, the always and forever kind of love. That's the love that God has for you, that he never gives up on you. He never forsakes you. He never abandons you. He never forgets you, though you may forget him from time to time. He never forgets you. And even when you are forgetful, he is still faithful. This is the new covenant that God gives through Jesus. In the old covenants, God never broke his promise, but you did and we did. And so God had to send a new covenant. On God's side, the covenant had been kept, but on your side, it has been broken. And so Jesus, God becomes a man to fulfill the covenant for us in our place because we could not do it. He came and he did it on our behalf. The very son of God, the very son of man in that upper room became our new covenant sacrifice, which means the covenant is sure. The covenant is assured. The covenant cannot be broken because it is kept by Jesus. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is a gift that he gives to you freely. And because you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. It's always available right there for you. This is the new covenant, Jesus says, that is in my blood. It's through the blood of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins, forgiven. They're washed white as snow, cast as far as the east is to the west. God doesn't only forgive them, but he also removes them. And you are wearing a garment of white and you are clothed in his righteousness. When God sees you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the saint that he has called you to be. You may not see yourself clearly, but when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees the blood of righteousness. He sees you for who you truly are, the way he created you, not the way sin has stained you. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. In this new covenant, when God says he loves you, he means it. His love is not conditional. His love is unconditional in the new covenant. It is unrelenting, undeserved, unmerited grace and favor and redemption and mercy. Every single day, his mercies are new. Once again, when you forgot yesterday, he's got new mercies waiting for you today. This is what's available for you in the new covenant. He removes the heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh in the new covenant. By his stripes, we are healed. It's all found in the new covenant. In the new covenant, we see we get a new heart with a new nature with a new destiny with a new identity with new plans new purposes new desires we got the fullness of God inside of us this is all found in the new covenants and Jesus says this is my blood the new covenant for you and tomorrow you might forget this but he will never forget about you even when we are forgetful Oh, God is so faithful. And so if you're here today and you are broken, come, take the cup and hold up that cup. If you're here today and you're tired, take the cup, hold the cup high. If you're in sin, repent of the sin, come, take the cup, hold it up. If you're lonely, there is a covenant of a faithful God who will never abandon you or ever make you feel alone. He is present with you always. Come take the cup, hold the cup up and remember 
what Jesus has done for you. And here's what I love. It says that this is the new covenant in my blood. What does he say? What does he say? Poured out for the many. God doesn't measure his love for you. God doesn't measure his love in saying, okay, you get a little bit of love and you get a little bit of love and you get a little bit of the new covenant and you've already used all of your covenant, so I'm not gonna give you any more. And, and, and you can have a little bit, but you used too much last week, so I need you to use it sparingly right now, okay? Like you need to actually like do a budget on this blood, okay? You need to work it out because like I'm gonna run out for you, okay? And I, like you lost it a long time ago. And so he doesn't do that. He doesn't measure out his love for us. Here's what he says he does. What, is it, what does it say? Poured out. Poured out. He pours out his covenant. Do you need it? He never runs dry. Do you need it? He always has enough. Do you need it today? He says, oh, you come to me. Bring your cup. It's empty. Oh, I know it's empty. But I'm ready to pour myself out for you. And you come to me tired and broken and weary, lost and hurting. Come to me just as you are and hold up that cup. And I'm going to pour myself out to you in a way that you could never imagine because I don't measure my love for you. I pour it out. You might have been forgetful. God wasn't. God never forgot you. He was just waiting for you to come to the table so he could fill you back up because he is faithful. Which leads... To the third point. I hope this is helping communion become real for you. The third point is this. It's the, it's the coming kingdom. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, For when you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. After finishing Mark chapter 13, teaching over the end times, verses like these should take on all new meaning for us, shouldn't they? Understanding that when we take communion, we're not just proclaiming the death of Jesus, which in one sense, yes, we are. But also when we take communion, we are prophesying about the second coming of the Lord. We're saying, Jesus died for me, but one day Jesus is coming back for me too. In the same way the saints of the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Jesus, we understand their pain and their exile because we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus as well. He came the first time, he'll come again. And when you take, you are proclaiming the Lord's death and you're also prophesying into your future. He goes on and Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day which I drink it new. And this day will be the day in the kingdom of God. Jesus saying, guys, I'm going to go away for a while. I'm about to go to the cross where I'm going to be betrayed, crucified, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to ascend to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a meal for you. And so in the meantime, I want you to take this meal, and you keep taking it. You gather as a church. You gather as friends. You take this meal. You pass it on generations. And when I return, I'm going to bring the whole church together and we're going to sit around a meal and I will eat and drink with you the way I always intended to in the garden. Amen. The way I ate with Adam and Eve is the, day, the way that I'm going to eat with you. The same communion Adam and Eve had with God, you can have with God. And this is culminated in what is known as the marriage feast of the Lamb. Here's what Revelation tells us. It says, let us then rejoice Communion is not to be a solemn moment of sadness, but rather it is to be a moment of rejoicing in heaven. 
It says, let us rejoice. There will be no tears in heaven. Every tear will be wiped away. Every hurt will be healed. Every sin will be forgiven. And when we come to communion, we rejoice and exalt him and we give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, that's us, we are the church. The bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints, pure and white. And the angel said, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. You are blessed. You are blessed. And you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the true words of God. 15 years ago, I took Ashley out for dinner. And that was the meal that changed my life because that was the day I knew I wanted to marry her. And that meal has led to 15 years of eating together. And I'm praying by God's grace, we'll get another 50 more years of sharing meals together. But you and me, when we take communion, what we're reminded is this, is we're gonna have a billion years to eat with Jesus. And that will never even be enough to scratch the surface of his goodness and kindness to us. This is the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so when you come and you take and you eat, you're just like me and Ashley last night when we went out to dinner. And as I ate that meal with dinner, my table was bigger. I got two toddlers at my table now. (laughs) But as you share a meal with God, what happens is your life gets bigger. Your love for him gets bigger. Your knowledge of him gets bigger. And one day we finally realized when you take your seat at the marriage feast of the Lamb, surrounded by the great family of God, 3.5 billion of us on the planet right now, and we're laughing and we're eating, and Jesus walks in the room, and we all stand to our feet, and we hold up our glasses and we toast the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. And we have communion with him. That's why we take communion today.